I first learned of Casey Stanton and her work in a rather bizarre way. I was on a long drive several years ago when two friends from very different parts of my life both called me only hours apart to ask me the same question. Have you heard of Casey Stanton? Do you know of the Discerning Deacons Project? No, I had not heard of Casey Stanton, and I did not know about the Discerning Deacons Project, but I figured I'd better find out. I'm so glad I did. Discerning Deacons is a project spearheaded by Casey and her colleague Ellie Hidalgo in collaboration with many others that responds to Pope Francis's invitation to discern whether the Roman Catholic Church should revive the ordained diaconate for women. The project has been active in facilitating the listening work of the Synod on Synodality and in promoting the annual celebration of St. Phoebe, first-century deacon praised by St. Paul in his letter to the Romans. Casey is a product of Sacred Heart Education and a devotee of St. Madeline Sophie Barat, featured in Chapter 7 of Redeeming Power. But I'll let her tell you more about her education and how it formed her to be a woman of courage, unafraid of power, her own and others. Clearly, there was a moment in time when you kind of woke up to your own power and possibility. Mm. So I would just, I would be curious to hear you talk about that. Like, when did you begin to wake up to the power that you do have? Part of it was coming into the field of faith-based community organizing and kind of redefining power. Um, Because I think as an 18 or 19 year old, I had a sense of, the world is not as it should be. And I also had definitely had the narrative in my head, like absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. The world isn't right, but you definitely don't want power. That's not how you make it right. And community organizing gave me this framework to kind of heal a notion of power as not intrinsically corrupting. It gave the second half of the maxim, which is absolute powerlessness corrupts. Absolutely. So I feel like it just gave me a bunch of definitions as a 20-year-old to continue to live into and let sink into me, which really defines power more like the Spanish poder, to be able to, the ability to act sort of in a value-neutral state. And it's like, then we know power can be misused and abused it's harder often to recognize when power is being exercised in alignment with our values. But what I was formed and invited to try to practice the art of in community organizing work was collective power. And the, the sort of spiritual gospel revelation for that in me at every turn was I constantly felt ill-equipped, like I didn't know enough, And I would just pray the liturgy of the hours in the morning and like ask God to show me what I needed to see and like what helped me hear what I needed to hear and then speak and act in a way that God wanted to have happen. And so there's sort of this real surrender that if God wants, I believe in a God who wants to bring about justice in the world. And it's not actually about like forcing that into being. It's actually about letting it be revealed, like the communion that's here. And when we listen deeply and uncover that, we unleash the power of God in us. Like we can all of a sudden act in new ways because 
we've listened and heard what the sort of shared pathways are. I think my understanding of power is always evolving and unfolding from this side of understanding it as fundamentally relational and meant to be exercised as part of a collective. It takes a tremendous amount of freedom to have like an internal sense of power that I think I, I think maybe this is what God's calling me to do. Maybe this is what I, I think I could do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of wondering, I hear within your voice, you know, a little bit where you do question, is this really, is, is this really true? But also, I mean, obviously you got the gumption to have tried something quite remarkable. And I'm curious to know where that came from. It feels like poco y poco, you know, like a little by little. I really do feel like faith is the source of it for me. That if we believe all this stuff, why would we be afraid? But also a sense that our faith is to be incarnated. So it's not just having an idea and thinking, I have this idea and I'm going to make it happen in the world. But it coming out of just having done dozens and dozens of relational conversations and listening and realizing that every woman I'm talking to is telling a different version of the same story. Like there is a shared dream. There's a shared lament. How might I help weave it together in this moment? And so I think it's the formation in organizing and then the ongoing formation in, in a message of divinity and, you know, in, in sort of theological and ministry studies. But maybe it's, it's like, you know, does it go, it goes all the way up and down. It's like, the way my parents loved me, the way I was taught, you know, I went to a, I'm a product of Sacred Heart Education and the RSCJ sisters. And, you know, the, the motto is educating women of courage and confidence. You know, I got the St. Madeline Sophie Barat Award and I am very proud of that forever. Like I carry the medal with me because I feel like here was this woman who in like the wake of massive repression of the church, you know, in France and how did this like 20 something year old woman found a new order? I mean, she was administering it through letters and offering spiritual direction. And I mean, she just kind of did it all like in the world, navigating the world while also just really being true to what her sense was about like the love of Jesus alive in her heart that needed to be shared with others. And, and just built this thing, built this international society that continues to educate women of courage and confidence. I think the St. Madeline Sophie Barat is a part of that slogan, you know, of courage and confidence. Are there other saints or stories from church history or passages from scripture that you just find you draw on over and over again that give you courage and confidence? There's the one in, I think it's 2 Timothy, which is funny because like, I think the Timothy letters always get quoted to like, as to why women can't have public roles in scripture, right? But I love the the line of God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and self-discipline. And this notion that God can give us a spirit of power, I think is pretty revolutionary. And I think all the time about how most of us dwell with the spirit of fear and, and that fear more than anything is the enemy. <laughs> I just really feel like we're, we have so much fear about what we could be about all kinds of things. And then there's just, in terms of how power seems to bend around the body of Jesus. So thinking about that women have the power to touch Jesus and to push through the crowd to touch Jesus, the power to anoint Jesus, 
there's just all this like physical intimacy with Jesus that women share that he not just receives, but like lets it transform him, lets himself be changed by the encounters he has, especially with women who are coming with something that they need and they like need to get to him. So those feel to me like they're revealing these power dynamics all the time. So the Canaanite woman is one of my favorite stories, even as it's just one of the most horrific ones. (laughs) How is Jesus really likening this woman to a dog? Oh yeah, he is. It's awful. He is being awful. It's because he, we can't rob Jesus of his learning, right? His humanity. And this encounter with a woman who nobody believes is part of the club, is part of the story, is part of salvation history, is part of the mission of God. But she knows that Jesus has a healing for her daughter. And so she doesn't let his diss deter her, but she quips right back. I think it's the most incredible encounter and that she does it when he's surrounded by his disciples. Like I can just see the scene. I just take tremendous strength from this scene because I think it's also not about her. She's coming because her daughter needs to be healed. That's to me what so much of this is about. It's not just power for me. It's power because our daughters need to be healed. And so I need the disciples of Jesus to learn a new thing and see a new thing. And I can't be afraid of that conviction I have that Jesus has a healing for us. And then one other that I think of, which is like kind of on the underside is, you know, the story of the rape of Tamar and how Tamar, like, you know, this is David's house. This is, I still don't feel like many of us actually have the David story in our bones which is wild. There's the son of David. I'm like, have you checked out the house of David? (laughs) That house falls apart. The sons have repeated the sins of their father. Like, but she, in the wake of this horrific rape by her brother refuses to be silenced and like just demands that it be seen in the household it can't just get swept under the rug. So I think there's something very powerful in that biblical story of this. It's like, we do believe in a God who sees and women, when their backs have been against the wall, when they when their power has been stripped, there is actually still this power to force the story to not ignore what has just happened. I think that's how women have often had to navigate in history in the wake of violence and abuse, they have found ways to not let it be unseen and to sort of demand an account. Um, So it's a different kind of exercise of power. Is there a tool like, and maybe especially when you were meeting a bishop, but maybe elsewhere as well, that you kind of wish that you had that you think would help you to exercise power more completely? Or maybe maybe it really is just like, I'll be given it what I need in the moment. Yeah, I think I... I think I wish I had some little alarm bell or light bulb that would go off when I start to narrow. I think the biggest way to diminish my own power is to like put out a single tiny brick for us to stand on together. (laughs) What's sort of the widest possible space that we could stand in and find our path towards why we'd relate and want to be in relationship. Um, And I think that's the mistake that I make. And I think that a lot of people who are trying to advocate for something they believe in deeply make like that. We don't 
I should just spend way more time thinking about other people than what I'm trying to do <laughs> because it just gets released. Your space to move and get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller if I'm just thinking about what I'm trying to do. But if I think deeply about other people and what they're juggling and carrying and caring about and worried about and what keeps them up at night and then we can like find ways to relate to each other and walk together. I think that maybe I just need a mantra to remind me before every encounter to just keep approaching people in the fullness of their humanity and see them that way. And then expect to also be received in the fullness of my humanity. So like, I don't have to contort myself or make myself small or be overly deferential but I can respect a person in authority by respecting the fact that they probably have a lot of responsibilities that keep them up at night, you know, and not expecting that they're automatically my enemy because they haven't already done something that I wanted them to do or really trying to have the biggest and widest human to human encounter. I think just gives more room for the spirit to move and for possible seeds to be planted and for us to like realize we're on the same journey, working on the same team. I do think one of the ways that sometimes when we when we've held all that, the most common way that it manifests itself often is in forms of anger. And it sounds like you've been able to reach, I don't want to say beneath the anger, but to recognize that the expression of anger oftentimes is actually grounded in sorrow. Mm-hmm. And that's in some ways an even deeper expression of what's at stake. Mm-hmm. And the I think the most initial reaction for many of us is anger. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a question in there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that was like what we, I feel like in the organizing training, we were just like deeply taught to not fear anger. I think the North's word for anger has the same root as grief or, you know, the sense that our anger is rooted in a grief or a wrong often. I feel like I am deeply angry at the, and I get angry and hot when I hear a fresh account of really anyone being abused and taken advantage of in our church. It's like, it's not as it should be, but it's underneath that. You're right. Is it, is just a real sadness um, and a desire to then be motivated. Like I think one of the talk about organizing is you, you want to transform your hot anger into a cold anger. Like, so you're not just flying off the handle, but that you're in touch with the deepest sources of your anger and grief So that when you might decide, well, I could go do some other thing that's maybe less risky or scary to do. It's like, what keeps you in the struggle? And it's like, it's close to lament. And so it's like, how do we keep feeling those things to drive us? Which I think is so much like, what are the drives for power about? And I think if it's coming from like a hot anger place, when it's rooted in like the lament of God's people and the cries of the earth, you know, it's both a deep lament and I think the anger can keep us from getting numb when there's like fresh accounts and saying, this is why I want to work to exercise power in a different way. This is why I want to be part of inspiring other ways of acting and exercising power in the world. The synod piece is trying to deal with the fact that there was tremendous abuse of power in our church. And we need, we don't just need a critique of that. We need a constructive way to be together. So in like an ecclesial assembly, as opposed to a bishop's meeting, everybody gets the same amount of time to speak. All of a sudden we've equalized the room. 
everyone has the same limit. It's not just the people with the titles getting to pour out all their ideas. It's we've created a circular space. So it's disruptive of power dimensions. And I value the hierarchy more than ever in a synodal church and process. But I think what the synod process is trying to do is, is turn the hierarchy on its side. It's not getting rid of it, but it's saying, stop trying to rule over like you're better than anybody. Everyone is just actually equal in the eyes of God. Like how many times do we have to say it? But what's your responsibility and the power you have? It's only ever to gather circles and to form people and to send them out and to gather them again and to form them and to send them out and to what is the shepherd? You know, what is the work of it? It's really a much more, how do we maintain communion in a global church with such wide array of difference? And it's possible, I think, because there is a hierarchy and, and right now it's like, what's hierarchy rightly understood? And it's, it's like, I can see what Pope Grant's trying to do. It's just really shaking up all the ways that we have been trained to think about power wielded and exercised. And he wants to bring it closer to like discernment of gifts and responsibilities flowing from a discernment of gifts and, and a sense of power is just always the power to serve the people of God <laughs> in their mission. And that's like build up our own little enterprises. Francis is the biggest inspiration for me right now. And he's so savvy with his exercising of power, but he knows, I think that power isn't to necessarily command. It's like to inspire and cast vision and nourish, and then to hold people accountable when they abuse their power. There's kind of rich roots that at least when I'm listening, I hear feed your spirituality of power. Mm -hmm. One is definitely this, the, the background of community organizing. Here's a favorite story. There's this young Wonderful young man. He's in, super involved in our church. He was a DACA recipient and was involved in like music ministries and catechesis and all these different things. And he started getting involved in our community organizing project in Durham. The sheriff's office had been sort of collaborating with ICE. And there was a few instances of officers being there at pickup and parents who were nervous about picking up their kids at school and sort of tensions were raising raised. And so he started getting more and more involved in like learning what could he possibly do? And the thing he said to me was, what if we are the power of God? And I thought, yeah, that's it. We're the power of God. Like I'm not God, but we together are the way that God's power comes to be known in things like how we structure our life together. So it was, I feel like it was just a very wise perspective. And I think that's kind of my spirituality. So I need people to hold me accountable. I need people who are going to call me out when I'm asking people to do crazy things, I need, you know, I need advisors. I need, like, I need a lot. I need all the help I can get. I need the saints and the sacraments and human beings to be like, to hold me and ground me. I did have my own bishop say, you know, when you do this work in the church, you've got to be humble. And I, it felt a little bit like an insult in the moment, you know, cause I did want to say, I'm like, I have been like, I'm a mom of two. Like I just found parenting to be a deeply humbling experience. Like I have no delusions about the power I have. I can't get these kids to do anything. Am I connected enough to them for them to consent to the thing I'm asking them to do? Like I need to speak with boldness. I think this, this word in the Senate, parisia is a good power word. 
it's we can't be what we need to be if we aren't being bold and truthful. And there's like a deep spirituality inside of all that. You know, it's like, am I, will I say something that can build us, can build more space for us to stand on together, you know, or am I saying something that's just throwing up more walls between us? That's not Parisia. We got to build more ways to walk together. I think that's the most powerful thing that Jesus seems to try to do. The other route that I hear under girding what you're saying, and maybe it comes through the RSCJ tradition mm. that you're in, is sort of the Jesuit spirituality. Of, mm-hmm. Well, clearly, and that I think undergirds a lot of what, what Francis is doing right now too, right? Around discernment, but then also the sense of detachment. What I'm longing for is the good in whatever manifestation that might take. Principles of detachment and discernment undergird everything that you're talking about. I think the other super formative thing for me is the Exodus story. You know, my mom's Catholic, my dad's an agnostic Jew, and we celebrated the Passover every year with his family. I feel like celebrating the Seder and telling the story year after year gave me more of a belief in God's concern about history and the material conditions of people. God enters into history through us by calling up leaders, by taking people on a wild journey by organizing a bunch of actions against the power structure. Like that story really, it feels like a story that's all about God's power working with and through ordinary flawed human beings. It's like God's still wanting to enter into history so that we can get free. That is just still true. It's a bedrock truth about God. If you want to get into that, you just have to roll up sleeves and be like, all right, I'm going to like get into the mess where there's going to be different kinds of ways of contesting for power. And what is the way that the biblical witness reveals? What are the spiritual traditions that can anchor us? I feel like it is a gift to the whole world. It's like communal discernment. We're all responsible for moving it forward too. It's like got to share the responsibility. If we've all discerned, this is the thing that we are being called to. 